The following sermon was delivered by Pastor Ryan Rippey in the Sunday morning service at Calvary Community Church in Brentwood, California. You'll find more information at calvarytruth.org. You know, here in this passage this morning, we talk about adoption as sons and being adopted into the family of God. And the, the wonderful news that we heard in the book of Romans is that not only are we given a new identity in Christ so that we're adopted into his family and now we take his name, as it were. We, we have the right to take the name of God, as it were, that we're part of God's family. We now have a new identity. But also, we have this wonderful promise that not only do we have a new identity and we're going to take the name of God, but we have a new nature and we're actually going to be made like the Son of God. We heard it in Romans 8. Those he foreknew, and that word foreknew is a wonderful word. If you could study it in the Greek, you would see that it's this idea of foreloved. Those he set his affection upon in eternity past, he predestined to be conformed into the image of his son. Remember what Jesus said when they tried to trap him? They tried to trap him in a political trap, and they, they, they said, uh, should we pay taxes to Caesar? And they were thinking, we don't want to pay taxes. We, don't, we shouldn't pay taxes. Should we pay taxes to Caesar? And they were hoping he would say no. But you remember what Jesus said? He said, get me a coin. So they get him a denarius. And he looks at it and stamped right on the top of that coin is Caesar's image. And he says, you give to Caesar what's Caesar's. That's which has his image on it. And you give to God what's God's. And what's his point? You were stamped with the image of God. You were made in his image. And yes, the fall after Adam sinned, the image of God on us apart from Christ is marred and it's darkened and it's obscured, but it's not obliterated. This is the great, wonderful news of the gospel is that though the image of God is marred and obscured and darkened by the fall, it's not obliterated. And if you come to Christ, you can be made new and the image of God could be restored in you. And you could become like his son. And what does that look like? Well, we see it in the Gospels. We see his life lived perfectly. He was the second Adam. He was the, the perfect image of God. He was the perfect priest of God and king of God and prophet of God. The one who was going to restore everything lost in the garden. And now because we're in him, we become like him. What a day that's going to be, isn't it, to be freed from sinning? And as I looked at, at my friend, his two young boys, and I saw this image stamped on them of their family genetics, I couldn't help but think, as I talked to him and heard him talk, just bearing his heart about the ministry and how hard it is to shepherd people and love them and disciple them and you pour into them and then they do stupid things. And I thought, you know what? What is wonderful to see in him is the image of God stamped on him, that God has done a work. I've known him since we were in sixth grade. We became friends in sixth grade. And to see the work of God in his life, it caused me to praise our Father in heaven. And so as we come to Galatians this morning, Galatians chapter 4, verses 1 to 7, this is one of my favorite passages in the Bible. And... I know you've heard me talk about these things often from the pulpit. And, and so we just want to look at it again. And I want to remind you again who you are in Christ. The, the privileges you have as a child of God. 
I want to answer this question, what does it mean to be a child of God? What does it mean? You know, some of you, and I know I've had conversations with some of you, for you, the image of, of a father is not a good image. You grew up in a broken home where your father was absent. Your father didn't exist in the home because he didn't stay with your mother. Or, or some of you, you grew up in a home where your father was there, but he was abusive. And you had no affection for him as a father. In fact, it was more like living in slavery. Because if you didn't do what he said and you didn't act the way he wanted, you were bound to get hit or hurt or yelled at or cursed at. Some of you had this relationship with your father where he was there and he was in the home, but even when he was there, he wasn't there. He sat in his chair and he watched his TV. And his idea of a perfect child would be don't, don't you know, be seen and not heard. And so for, for some of you, when, when we talk about God as a father, that immediately the instinct in you is like, I don't know about that. I don't know if I want to have God as my father. But I want to remind you this morning, God isn't a father like human fathers. He's a perfect father in heaven. He's the father that you long to have. Even if you had a bad father or no father, you had an image of a father that you longed to have. And that's who God is. He's that kind of father. In fact, he's better than any of the images you ever created in your mind. And that's the good news this morning in this passage. This is what it means to be a child of God is that all your greatest hopes, all your greatest dreams about what it means to be a part of a family and have a father who loves you and cares for you and does what's best for you and never hurts you and never harms you. Guess what? God is that father. That is good news. Well, let me read this passage. And it's kind of, I began this message last time, two weeks ago, and so it, it catches right in the middle of his, his thought. And so I want to go back to chapter 3, verse 23 in the paragraph and read you the whole paragraph. Now, before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. So then the law was our guardian, our jailer, we saw last time, until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we're no longer under a guardian. For in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. For as many as of you were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There's neither Jew nor Greek. There's neither slave nor free. There's no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you're Christ's, then you're Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. I mean that the heir, as long as he is a child is no different from a slave, though he's the owner of everything, but he's under guardians and managers until the date set by his father. In the same way, we also, when we were children, were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons... God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. And I mentioned this last time, uh, ladies, it's okay to be called a son in this regard. Because he says in verse 7, if you're a son, you're an heir. And in, in Roman culture, the firstborn son received all of the inheritance And of course, we know the firstborn son of God is Jesus Christ. 
But if we're in Christ, we're considered sons. We're considered firstborns. We're considered heirs of the promise. Everything that God promised Abraham, we're going to receive in Christ. And so it's okay to be called a son of God in that sense. Just like it's okay for us to be called the bride of Christ. Married, wed to Christ as men. It's a good picture and image of this relationship we have now with God and how he treats us. How he sees us. Now Paul had traveled on his first missionary journey through Asia Minor, which is modern day western Turkey right there near the Mediterranean. He was planting churches all throughout Asia Minor, and he had come to this uh, Roman province of Galatia, much like our states. And he planted these churches in Galatia, and then he returned back to Antioch. And he received news that, that there had been some men who had gone up from Jerusalem, and they began persuading these new churches in Galatia to accept a different form of teaching. And these men that had come up from Jerusalem and were trying to add Jewish works to the gospel were trying to impose on these Galatian Christians the Jewish Mosaic law, especially circumcision. Not only that, they were talking bad about Paul. And they were saying that Paul really wasn't an apostle. That if you really wanted to get the true word of God, you had to go to a true apostle, which they were all down in Jerusalem. It wasn't Paul. And so Paul writes Galatians, as we've seen, to to not only defend his apostolic credentials, but also to bring them back to this wonderful doctrine of justification by faith alone and Christ alone plus nothing. To bring them back to the gospel. And starting in chapter 1, Paul rebukes the Galatians for departing the gospel. We saw that. In chapter 2, he defends his apostleship, saying, I receive my teaching independently of the other apostles. I received it directly from Jesus. I am an apostle. And in chapter two, he says that the way to be declared right before God and accepted before God is the same for Jew and Gentile, verses 15 to 21. And that justification by faith alone, that is being declared right in Christ simply by being connected to Christ by faith alone, that that's superior to the Mosaic law. It's better than the law. It's permanent, and the law was temporary in chapter 3. And that this is the promise God's been giving since he talked to Abraham in chapter 3. The promise he gave Abraham is that in one of his descendants, all the nations of the earth would be blessed. And that he would give him land, and he would give him offspring like the stars in heaven and like the sands on the seashore. And all of those promises find their fulfillment in Christ, Paul argues in Galatians 3. And so the purpose of the law, Paul goes on to say at the end of chapter 3, was never to declare you righteous. In fact, you could never keep it all. If you tried to keep the law, all you would be is condemned and guilty and worthy of judgment. And so the law was only a jailer, only in effect until Christ came. This is everything we've seen in Galatians so far. And up to this point, Paul is telling them, that they are no longer under the Mosaic law as a rule of life because they've been fully and freely declared righteous, justified in Christ. And it's based upon Christ's work alone plus nothing. And this is the only hope you and I have for any acceptance with God. Because God is holy 
And he's perfect and he's righteous and he can't just sweep sin under the rug. He can't just use the good old boy mentality and say, well, I've known you a long time. Why don't you come on into heaven? We'll ignore the fact that you've rebelled against me and disobeyed me. No, he has to judge sin. His righteous character demands it. And yet in his great love for this world, he sent a son to be the substitute and to pay the penalty we deserved so that we could go free. And he offers us this great hope in the gospel that you can be accepted simply by faith, by believing this promise of God in Christ that he died for you, that he was buried for you, that he rose again for you. And he's seated at the right hand of God for you. Romans 8, we heard it. And if God is for you, who could be against you? And there's nothing that can separate you from his love. This is good news. So Paul goes on to tell them that there's something just as wonderful in the gospel as being declared right before the eyes of God. There's this wonderful message that you can be a part of God's family. You can be adopted as sons of God and you can be heirs to all that God is going to give you. The heavens and the earth. I can't even imagine what it's going to be like. But this is his argument. And so he's answering this question, what does it mean to be a child of God? The first thing he does in in Galatians chapter 4 is he uses the example of a Roman child's position in the family. And and this is something they would have been familiar with. If he was speaking today and he was living in America, he would use the stereotypical position of a child in an American household probably. But in a Roman household, it was somewhat worse than the way we treat our children today in a lot of respects. There's a number of reasons for that. The infant mortality rate was high. A lot of children didn't live to adulthood, so you didn't get real attached to them. Uh, Later on in the Roman Empire, by the 4th century, because of how violent it was, that that there were even kids who weren't named until they were 2 years old. And that was a defense mechanism for parents, because obviously they have affection for their children. But to not name them meant if they died in infancy, there would be, it was a defense mechanism. But in, in Roman court of law, in inheritance rights, in a Roman household, a child was no different from a slave. Even though they were going to inherit everything when they came of age, while they were a child, they were no different than a slave. And that's what he says in verse 1, the heir, as long as he's a child, he's no different from a slave, even though he's the owner of everything. He's not able to use his inheritance. And not only that, as we saw last time in chapter 3, he's put under this guardian this pedagogue, and he's put under them, and this pedagogue treats them like a slave and makes sure they get their education and make sure they uh, have moral training and, and don't fall outside the band boundaries of what's appropriate for Roman children to do. But they lived very often in terror of these pedagogues. And, and very often they... There was not this sense of affection for their father. Verse 2, they're under guardians and managers until a date set by the father when they would receive their inheritance. And the guardian was this one who ruled over the children. He had legal responsibility for the child, see to the child's support and education, administer the inheritance in his interest. It was like a nanny, a crazy nanny that would beat you like crazy. And as we heard last time, 
There was that story of the one pedagogue who, when he found out his steward was running wild with some of the neighbor kids, actually put them in jail and asked the executioner to, to kill them so they wouldn't be a bad influence on this steward, this child they had. The manager, the guardian was the, the one who ruled over the child. The manager was the household steward who ran the house. They were overseers of everything in the house, including the underage heirs. and the, they, they were the ones who handled all the possessions and the inheritance. But the heirs would have a date set by the father, the day when the son reached maturity, adulthood, and would receive his inheritance. Now, now Paul doesn't fully carry through with the illustration because very often a Roman child wouldn't receive the inheritance until their father died. So Paul's not taking the picture to its fullest extent he, because God never dies. So we don't have to have God die in order for us to receive our inheritance. And so Paul just takes this idea of them as kids being uh, no different than a slave. He wants to present and show that God determined an end to this time period. He determined an end. And the end was the coming of Christ for the Jewish people. Paul says, look Galatians, just like a Roman child when they come of age receives the promise of their inheritance and would never go back under their guardians and never back under their managers, so too you received a promise in Abraham of an inheritance. And that promise is fulfilled in Christ. Why would you go back under the Mosaic law, under your guardians and managers? It was temporary until Christ came. But aren't we prone to do this? You know, it's so much messier in some ways to to have a relationship with God as a father rather than God as simply a lawgiver. Very often in our Christianity, we want someone just tell us what to do. Give us a list. I want my checklist. I want to read my Bible every day. I want to pray. I want to go to church. I'll homeschool my children. I won't drink alcohol. Then I'll be acceptable to God. I hope you don't think I'm being serious. That's not how God treats us. But very often, this is the way we think our Christianity ought to be. This is how we're going to be acceptable. This is how we're going to grow as long as we just do this list. Just give us a new law. Don't teach me how to deal with the messiness of life and relationship. Don't teach me how to deal with the the messiness of, of, of having a relationship with a God who loves me in spite of my sin and gave his son to die for me. And so the reason I pray to him, the reason I want to have communion with him is because he's my father. And I want to wrestle through all of my emotions and all of my anger and my fears and my love and my joy and my hope and my, my glory of him. Oh, I don't want to do that. Just give me a list and I can check it off and I can go about my day and then I can do my hobbies and it can be just one spoke on my wheel of Christianity. I have my hobbies and I have my family and I have church and I have my relationship with God and I have work and I have whatever else it is. No, if God is our father, as you well know, family is the hub and center of your existence. And so he takes pride of place. And so now you need to talk to him and commune with him and fellowship with him in everything in your life. And he's involved and it gets messy, doesn't it? Because he starts messing with your idols. And your hobby turns into an idol and you find your satisfaction and your enjoyment in that. And so he takes it away. He did that with me, with soccer. 
two knee surgeries, ended any hope I had of playing soccer. And here I was, I loved the Lord, and, and yet I became so engrossed in soccer that it became my idol. And so God simply took it away. A freak accident when I was working at Service Merchandise in Vallejo, my kneecap dislocated and tore up my knee, lifting a five-pound lawn chair. Shouldn't have happened. Should have been when I was lifting the 100-pound TVs. You know how they were back then with the big tubes. But no, that never happened. I didn't dislocate a kneecap then. I dislocated it, lifting a five-pound lawn chair and trying to move it. Ambulance ride to the hospital. Soccer done with. And I knew it. I knew the Lord was messing with my idols because he wanted himself to be the center of my affections. Are you frustrated in your life this morning? Is there something you desperately want and you find your satisfaction in and God hasn't given it to you or he's taken it away? Maybe it's because he wants you to focus on him and have a relationship with him rather than finding your joy and peace and satisfaction in whatever that is. You see, our keeping of rules, this laundry list, that never makes us acceptable to God. That's what Paul's saying. Jesus Christ makes us acceptable to God. That's the hope of the gospel. And you know what? He's the one that fully satisfies. He's the only one that fully satisfies uh, Jennifer and I driving home yesterday, Matt Papa has this wonderful song, The Ocean, and it, it's taken from a quote from Jonathan Edwards. And it talks about that all of these things in life, all of these, these worldly things, they're like shallow streams, and Christ is the ocean. They're like scattered beams, and Christ is like the sun. They're like shadows, and Christ is the substance. You see, and this is how we ought to see our relationship with God as our Father who's given us His Son. And not only that, he's, we're going to see He poured out His Spirit into our hearts, this Spirit of adoption, so that we have relationship with the triune God. And it satisfies. Psalm says, at His right hand is fullness of joy and pleasures forevermore. Nothing else will satisfy Nothing else will last. Everything else brings us back under slavery. And that's his, second, his next point here in chapter 4, verse 3. He says, in the same way, just like those Roman children, in the same way, we also, when we were children, we were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. We were slaves like Roman children. And we were in slavery to these things called elemental principles and you could even say it could be translated the abcs of this world the way the world works apart from god and we were enslaved to it it's like a hamster wheel we just got a hamster for ainsley hamilton hamilton the hamster we're very hip and cool you know we uh and and that that hamster i read on wikipedia so it must be true I read they run five miles a night. And I believe it because I heard that hamster wheel. Bum, 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 right? And, and he says, when you were slaves under the elementary principles of this world, you were like in this hamster wheel of this world system, running and getting nowhere. 
chasing after whatever it is, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the boastful pride of life. And it never satisfies and it never gets you anywhere. Paul says, in the same way, we were children, we were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. And it's like slavery, isn't it? When we try to find our satisfaction in this world, isn't it like slavery? We could chase the dollar. That might be what you think will give you joy is if you just had enough money and you chase the almighty dollar and all it does is enslave you. It might be your reputation. If you just were well-known enough and you, you, were, you were famous enough and you were powerful enough, then you would have joy. And all it does is enslave you. It might be sex and the pleasures of the flesh. And all it'll do is enslave you. Whatever it is, it's the elementary principles of this world and it doesn't satisfy and it is bondage. And the good news of the gospel is that Christ came to set you free from that. In fact, that's what he says in the next verse. He says, we have need of God's legitimate son. The father, verse 4, sends him at just the right time. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. See, if you're not a Christian here this morning, if you haven't put your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, you're under bondage to the ABCs, the elementary principles of this world, the way the world works. And you might have come here today thinking that just by coming, you're gaining some sort of good standing with God. Or perhaps you've come because you're at the end of yourself and you don't know what else to do with your life because you've tried to run it your own way and all you've done is failed. You're tired of the bondage of this world. You're sick of it. There's hope here in verse 4. At the fullness of time, that is the high point of the ages, at exactly the right time, God sent forth his son. And the idea of being sent forth is this idea is that someone from authority sends another person to accomplish a specific task. Jesus Christ was sent forth to come into this world to accomplish eternal redemption. And that picture of redemption, it's obvious why he chose that word because in the context he's been talking about slavery and this word redemption means to buy out of bondage. To purchase out of bondage with a price. And Jesus purchased us with his own blood. The price of his death on the cross. He purchased us out of bondage so that we could be free and we could be sons of God. And we can have relationship with him and we could no longer be under slavery. At the fullness of time, at exactly the right moment, Jesus came into history. You see, in the ancient world, a king might send his representative to a city to, to convey a message. Hear ye, hear ye, right, in the central square. Or, or to carry on a work. And often, as a sign to authenticate the message, that messenger would carry a document with the authority and the task with a seal on top of that document, and they would break the seal and read it. And the sign of the seal would convey to anybody standing around, anybody in the audience, that this was actually, this one was sent by the king. And we better listen because this one has all the authority to carry out the king's work. 
And in John 6, it says, On Christ the Father has set his seal to carry out this saving work. And he came. And he came in verse 4 to become a man, it says. He was born of a woman. He became like us in all ways, yet without sin. He became our mediator and our substitute. He had an actual human body like ours. He faced the same sort of trials and perils and and temptations that we face, and yet he was without sin. You see, he had to be fully God in order for his sacrifice to be of infinite worth necessary to pay the penalty for our sin. But he also had to be fully man in order to represent us and to take the penalty upon himself on our behalf. Because man was the one who sinned and man was the one who was under the curse. Man was the one who was condemned to render his life forfeit to God. And Jesus, therefore, became a man to be a substitute for us. He had to be God to have the power of the Savior, and he had to be a man to have the position of the substitute. And so he's fully God and fully man. And as a man, the next thing it says in verse 4 is he lived perfectly under the law. He was born under the law. He was born Jewish. And he fulfilled the law perfectly in our place. He was circumcised. He was qualified in all ways to be our substitute to redeem us from the penalty of the law. And that's what it says in verse 5 to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. God sent his son to redeem us, to buy us up, to buy us back. We're no longer under the dominion of sin and we're no longer under the dominion of the Mosaic law and Christ freed us from all of that by dying in our place as our substitute. This is the hope of the gospel. And this is, this is what he did when he redeemed us. And this is absolutely necessary because first, we could not live perfectly under the law. Paul has argued this over and over and in our own lives. We know this. We can't live under God's righteous standard. He says, verse 5, to redeem those who were under the law. And then he says, the end goal, the end result of his redemption of us is so that we might receive adoption as sons. Adoption, this legal technical term that we have this sonship status bestowed on us in Christ. We're legally declared to be the child of God the Father and therefore we're treated and cared for just like we were his. And we have all the rights of inheritance because of that. And so this is everything that we have in Christ. This is what it means to be a child of God. Turn over to Romans 8. The passage that Dave read for us this morning, verse 23, part of what it means to be a child of God, he says, verse 23, not only creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit grown inwardly as we wait eagerly for our adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. He says there's a couple implications in this verse. First, we have the Spirit of God. And he's called the first fruits of the Spirit. What does this mean? Our spirit's been renewed. Our spirit's been born again. Our spirit has been changed. Our spirit's the immaterial part of us. We have body that's material and spirit and soul that's immaterial. And our immaterial part has changed now that we're in Christ. 
And the Spirit now indwells us, and we have the first fruits of everything we're going to receive in glory as our inheritance. We've been born again to a living hope. We're not the same anymore. And what's going to happen in the future is that our bodies are going to be redeemed. Our bodies are going to be changed. They're going to be made perfect, able to do everything that God intends for us to do in the new heavens and new earth. What a glorious hope it is. And he also says a little bit, a few verses back in verse 19, creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. And this to me is really hopeful because us as Christians, we know this is true. We've experienced that God has changed us. We know we have been born again. We have this hope that we're going to be made like Christ and we're going to receive this inheritance. But there's another desire we have as Christians is that we'll in fact be vindicated for our faith. That we'll be revealed as sons of God, and that this revelation will be to the world and they'll know it's true, that everything we believed in, everything we've hoped in, is not a pipe dream, it's not wishful thinking, it's not a crutch to get us along because we're weak-minded. It's absolute reality, ultimate reality, and it's what's going to be revealed. And all of creation eagerly waits for this revealing of the sons of God, our inheritance and who we are in Christ, that we're more than conquerors through him who loved us. That there is no condemnation for us who are in Christ, verse 1. Because we've been set free from the law of sin and death. And nothing can separate us from the love of God. And that everything God causes to work together for our good to those who love him and are called according to his purpose. So even the troubles we face, the sorrow we have, this veil of tears that we pass through in life, all of it is working for our good. Maybe not in this life, but in the life to come, we will be revealed as sons of God to a watching world. And we'll be vindicated We'll be put on display as God's children. We'll be exalted and lifted up high to the heavens like Christ is lifted up. And the proof that all of that is true is that we've been given the Spirit as a down payment and guarantee of our inheritance. And so don't ever doubt it. Don't get discouraged by this world in social media and the comments section of blogs that I don't even know why we read them, right? Where people spew their venom and hate for all things concerning Christ. And tell us we're stupid and foolish for believing the gospel. No, there's coming a day when it's going to be revealed what it means to be a child of God. This should stir up in us family affections for God our Father. We, you see, what Paul's getting at is... We should not live the Christian life in the fear of a slave. We should live the Christian life with the affection of a son and a daughter. And this is what, as a pastor, I want to be true in your lives. I want this to be pushed down so deep that you instinctually have this come out of you when trials press you. Is that I am not a slave in the house of God. I am a child in the house of God. I don't need to live my Christian life in the fear of a slave. I need to live my Christian life with the affection of a son or a daughter of God. And the one who wants you to know this is not just me. The one who wants you to know this is God the Father. 
He's the one who's given you the spirit of adoption. He's the one who's poured out the spirit into your heart so that you cry out, Abba, Father. He's the one who sent his son at the high point of the ages to redeem you so that you might receive the adoption as sons. Back in Galatians. He's given you a spirit. And so turn back to Galatians and let's look at the last two verses. Galatians 4, 6, and 7. Because you are sons, God the Father has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father, so you are no longer a slave but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. The benefit of our adoption as sons is that God has given us the spirit of his son. All three persons of the Trinity at work here. Isn't this wonderful? God the Father has sent the Holy Spirit of his own son. The Spirit is called the Spirit of God in Scripture and the Spirit of his son, Spirit of Christ. And he sent him into our hearts. And the purpose of the Spirit in our hearts is not to make you feel like you're under a microscope and that God is watching ready to smash you with his thumb at any moment. That's how I used to think. When I I grew up going to a Christian school that was... um, well, they just they gave, they gave off this teaching that, that God was holy and righteous and, and a judge and om, his omniscience and knowing everything and being everywhere. His omnipresence meant that he was always watching and you better be careful. And the implication was always that he was just going to smack me down and nuke me off the planet if I did anything wrong and out of place. But that's not what it says here. What does it say here? It says, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts so that we would do something. What is it that we do? We cry out, Abba, Father. We cry out. It's not that we mentally, logically infer the fatherhood of God from the testimony of the spirit. No, we enjoy emotionally the fatherhood of God by the testimony of the spirit. You see, this isn't, the Spirit doesn't just give us some sort of premise by which we deduce that we're children of God, logically. The Spirit is pouring into us His power so that we delight in being the children of God. We cry out, Abba, Father, you're my Father. You are good and you do good and you love me and I know it. And at your right hand are pleasures forevermore. And I want to do nothing but be in your presence all the days of my life. The reason Paul uses the word cry and the reason he uses this Aramaic word Abba, which would have been the words of Jesus for the Father because he was Jewish and he spoke Aramaic, which was the common language. It points to a deep, affectionate, personal, authentic experience of God's fatherly love. He doesn't say that the testimony of the Spirit was that we affirm doctrinally that God is Father. The devil knows that. Doctrinal affirmations are important. Doctrine and teaching is important. But that's not what makes us children. What is said here is that the testimony of the Spirit and His indwelling work, this is what makes us children of God being united to Christ. And from our hearts, God's children cry, Abba, Father. The same words of intimacy that Christ used. 
This is the prayer form of Jesus himself when he prayed in the garden, Father, take this cup from me, but not my will, your will be done. And I don't think, you know, there's, there was an older teaching that said, you might have heard this before, that the word Abba is, is the word for daddy. And so it's like a child speaking to a father. And I've done, you know, I've done a lot of research on this, and I don't think that's what he's getting at. I don't think it's the age of the child that's the emphasis in this word, but rather the intimacy of the relationship. Because even adult children at this time in Aramaic would say Abba to a father and it has to do with the intimacy of the relationship and I don't know about you but very often over the years in my Christian life sometimes I have felt far from God like my prayers bounce off the ceiling and come back down and that you know God listens to people who are a little closer to him a little more spiritual a little more godly and I'm not sure he has time for me because who am I I'm a punk kid that came from Vallejo But what this verse says is that we have this intimate relationship with God that we can address him the same way as Jesus addressed him. And that we can draw near to him because he's drawn near to us. In fact, he's poured out his spirit into us so that it will produce this in us. So that we know God is our father and I can speak to him and I have access to him and he's going to hear my prayers. And they're not bouncing off the ceiling. They're actually making it into his throne room. And he causes all things to work together for good. Charles Spurgeon, speaking about this word, I have to give you a quote from Spurgeon. My favorite dead guy. He pastored in the 19th century in England. He was called the Prince of Preachers, but he he writes this about this passage. This leads me to observe that this cry in our hearts is exceedingly near and familiar. In the sound of it, I've shown you that it is childlike, but the tone and manner of the utterance are equally so. Note that it's a cry. If we obtain audience with a king, we do not cry. We speak in measured tones, in set phrases. But the Spirit of God breaks down our measured tones and takes away the formality which some hold in great admiration, and it leads us to cry, which is the very reverse of formality and stiffness. And when we cry, we cry, Abba, Even our very cries are full of the spirit of adoption. Cry is a sound which we are not anxious that every passerby should hear. Yet what child minds his father hearing him cry? So when our heart is broken and subdued, we do not feel as if we could talk fine language at all, but the spirit in us sends forth cries and groans, and of these we're not ashamed, nor are we afraid to cry before God. I know some of you think that God will not hear your prayers because you cannot pray grandly like such and such a minister. Oh, but the spirit of the son cries, and you cannot do better than cry too. Be satisfied to offer to God broken language, words salted with your griefs, wetted with your tears. Go to him with holy familiarity, and don't be afraid to cry in his presence, Abba, Father. You ever feel that way, that you can't pray because you don't know the right way to pray? Or you can't pray because you're not near enough to God? The good news of being a child of God is that none of that's true. Would we ever treat our children that way? That they would have to learn how to speak properly and have the right utterances to even talk to us? Or they could only come to us when they have it all together and get themselves cleaned up and get their act together? Of course not. In fact, when we, very often when they feel the most 
desire to come to us is when they're broken and helpless and needy. And they're at the end of themselves and they don't know what to do and they come to us and say, Mom, Dad, I need help. I don't know what to do. Why wouldn't it be the same with God? He's a perfect Father in heaven. And the wonderful news about it is He's also all-powerful. So you can come to Him when you don't know what to do and guess what? He's able to do what you can't do. Me as a father, I could be the best father in the world, and I'm not, but I could strive to be that, but sometimes I don't have the resources or the ability to help. And God's not even that way. He's a perfect father who has all the resources and all the strength to help you in every need. And God has given us an inheritance. And so he's given us the spirit of his son. It's in our hearts, causing us to cry out, Abba, Father, and then he's given us An inheritance. An inheritance. You're no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. We're sons of God because we belong to the Son of God, Jesus. And we're heirs of God because we've been united to him who's the heir of all of God's promises. And if we're in Christ, then we receive everything with him. Paul says this in Ephesians. You've been seated with Christ in the heavenly places. Far above all powers and principalities and authorities, all the rulers of this age, which Paul says in Ephesians in chapter 6 are our enemy. But you've been already seated in the heavenlies with Christ above them, and he's ruling and reigning over them, and they're defeated foes. And so when you battle spiritual warfare and you put on the Lord Jesus Christ, you're battling a defeated foe. They just don't know it yet. Let me just um, close by going back to Romans 8. Romans 8, let's look at verses 14 to 17. It's the parallel to Galatians chapter 4. He says, let's look at verse 13. If you live according to the flesh, you'll die. If you want to go back under bondage, I mean, obviously, this is a different set of circumstances Paul's writing in, but it's the same idea. Do you want, if you want to go back under, the, under bondage and live according to the flesh, guess what the result's going to be? You're going to die. There's no hope in that. But, verse 13, if you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. If you kill sin, (laughs) if you put it to death, you'll live. Verse 14, for all who are being led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. How do we put to death sin in our lives? We're led by the Spirit of God. In fact, when we're being led by the Spirit of God, it demonstrates that we, in fact, are sons of God. We've been adopted. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear. That's not what you received when you received Christ. Rather, you received the spirit, the Holy Spirit of adoption by which we cry, Abba, Father. And the Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we're children of God and if children, heirs, heirs of God, fellow heirs with Christ. Then he says this, provided we suffer with him in order that we might be glorified with him. So I want to dispel one more lie that this world says, and we see it in the prosperity gospel, which is a blight upon Christianity in America and around the world, that if you accept Jesus and you follow him, then God's going to make you rich and healthy and happy. And and, And if you're not rich and healthy and happy, it must be because you don't have enough faith. Or in worst cases, you haven't given to that guy enough money. That's not what the gospel says. 
Gospel says if you believe in Christ, you'll be made a child of God. And you're going to be heirs of God, but guess what that also means? You're going to suffer with Christ in order that you might be glorified with him. That means that all of your sufferings have a purpose. They're going to bring you to glory. He's in charge of all of them. And as a perfect father in heaven, he nothing, nothing, not one thing has come into your life that has not first passed through his hands. Because he loves all his children and he's intimately aware and concerned about you. And so whatever you're going through, whatever you face, whatever you have to leave these doors and deal with this afternoon, your father in heaven has allowed this to come into your life for his good purposes that you will be glorified with the Lord Jesus on that day. And so take hope in that. He loves you and he cares about you. It matters to him about you. Father, thank you for this word. I want this to encourage my brothers and sisters. I need to hear this word, Father. It is so easy to just take the lies of this world in, day in and day out, and begin to believe them. And Father, how we need to see the reality of what's true. You are a perfect Father in heaven who loves us and cares about us. Who's demonstrated it by giving your Son... Oh, Father, would you minister the Spirit of God into the hearts of my brothers and sisters. May your Spirit stir up family affections for you as their Father. And as we heard in Romans, may you be conforming them into the image of your Son, Jesus. Carve out sin in their life. Expose it. Bring conviction so that they repent and they go and they sin no more in areas where they've been hiding sin. Father, you know their hearts, and you're their father. And if you expose sin in their life, it's not to bring them into slavery and fear as we've seen, but it's so that they would see who they are in Christ and they would live as a part of the family in freedom. And so may your convicting work be a work of freedom to deliver us from this bondage to the flesh and bondage to sin. Do this, I pray in Jesus' name. To this message or learn more, please visit calvarytruth.org.